Romans 12, 3 through 10. If you will recall, I actually preached on Romans 12, 1 through 2 several weeks ago, and now I'm continuing on with Romans 12, 3 through 10. Um, Romans, that is, of course, if I can find it in this voluminous bulletin. Here we go. For by the grace given to me, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Rome. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The word of the Lord. The question I have for you is this. How would you live your life if you could live a life free of fear? If you could simply take fear out of the equation and go and live your life, what sort of life would you live? I'm very fascinated by this uh, Harvey Weinstein uh, case that continues to be out in the news as no, uh, new revelations come about. And you hear these very, very powerful people who were in the midst of that situation uh, who, knowing about the situation and could do something about the situation, didn't do anything. And the question we have to ask is why? I think the answer is fear. Fear of what it could mean to their career. Fear of what it could mean, the retribution. We think about that situation and we say, well, I would never do that if I was in that. But the reality and the truth of the matter is there are often things that we don't do because of fear. I think love and fear are opposite of one another in many ways. I find in myself a desire to love and reach out to people and yet simultaneously a fear of what might happen if I do so. I've realized that probably the biggest factor or problem with myself is myself. I'm simply too self-absorbed. What would life look like if I was able to let go of me and to live a life of love that Christ has called me to? I think that's what this passage is all about. See, Jesus gave his life that we might live a new life that we might live a life of love to God and to one another. But in order to do that, Jesus has to free us from us. So Jesus does free us from us and he frees us for one another. So let's go and live a life of love. Well, easy to say, Carlos, prove it. Very well, I shall. 
My first point that I want to talk about is the fact that Jesus frees us from us. We're in Romans 12. And if you know anything about Romans, many who would say, say is the greatest book, theological book of understanding the gospel. Romans 1 through 11, in Romans 1 through 11, Paul has been talking about who Christ is and what he has done. How he has lived a sinless and perfect life. How he has died on the cross. How he has taken our place. How he has uh, died for our sins. He's been raised to life for our justification. But one of the things that you notice in Romans 1 through 11 is there's almost zero commands of what to do. But Romans 12 to 16, there is now a flurry of commands that God gives. It's classic Paul. Here is what is true. In light of what is true, here is what to do. Romans 12, 1 and 2, which I preached on a couple of uh, weeks ago, has this central message. Uh, therefore, I urge you, dear brothers, this is 1 and 2, therefore, I urge you, dear brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. What Paul is saying is, Christians, in light of what Jesus has done, give all of yourself to Him. Make yourself His. Stop living for you. Start living for Him. See Him for who He really is. And now that we can see Christ rightly, if we do that, if we give our hearts and our lives to Him, it moves on to Romans 12.3. That when we see Christ rightly, we can now see ourselves rightly. For by the grace given to you, excuse me, given to me, I say to you, not to think more highly than he ought to think of himself, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That's that phrase that strikes me, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Because that's the exact antithesis of the world, isn't it? We're supposed to think of ourselves as the highest that we should think. Who doesn't do that? Who can't do that? When we live life, we live it from our perspective, and our perspective is we're always right. When there's a problem, it's other people's fault. When there's a perspective to be had, ours is the correct perspective. One of the worst things you can have in this world according to the world, is low self-esteem. But the reality is, that's not true at all. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine by psychologist Lauren Slater called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. It actually wasn't a groundbreaking article. Uh, she was simply beginning to report what experts has known for years. The significant thing, she says, is there is no evidence that low self-esteem is a big problem in society. And she quotes three different studies, all of which reach the same conclusion. That people with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with low self-esteem. And feeling bad about yourself is not the source of our country's biggest, most expensive social problems. Why do we think highly of ourselves? Why do we constantly think about promoting ourselves? I think the reason is because we believe in our mind that if we don't, 
no one else will. Right? We must convince people of who we really are or the facade or image of who we are, quote-unquote Facebook and so on and so on. Ever see an ugly picture? You know, someone puts up their most ugly picture on Facebook? No, we must convince them so they will render a good verdict of us because we are dependent on them. Madonna, in an interview in Vogue, had these very salient words to say. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have to become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Kudos to Madonna for telling the truth of how she feels. See, Madonna and many of us are in a prison. And that prison is ourselves and this world and what this world thinks of us. But you see, the gospel changes everything. Do you not realize that only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance. In every other religious system, certainly in the systems of the world, you perform and then you get the verdict. But in Christianity, you get the verdict before the performance. You get the words because of what Christ has performed of the Heavenly Father saying to you, with you I am well pleased. You are not only not guilty, you are righteous in my sight. You are my child. I am proud of you. See, the wonder of the gospel is we can perform on the basis of the verdict, not in order to receive the verdict. The wonder of the gospel is I can now see myself arightly. See, that's what Paul is saying, isn't he? By the grace of God given to me, I say to you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. I can see myself rightly. I'm not all that. And I've got a lot to work on. And I have flaws and issues, but you know what? That is okay. That I'm not perfect. Why? Because the verdict has already been rendered. And he will make me perfect. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. God has even given me, it's okay that I'm not the superstar of this whole thing called the church or Christianity. That I'm a simple person because there's no such thing as a simple person. To God is there. It's only children of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He was talking about worldly pride. The pride that we often use when we think of this word pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. See, the gospel gives us that elusive quality that we can live in, which is called 
contentment. I can be content that I am not God because of how God sees me, because of the verdict that he gives me. I love how Paul opens this passage where he says, I say to you, by the grace given to me. In other words, the only reason that I'm able to communicate and be in this position is because God has given me grace. In fact, he called himself the worst of all sinners. Paul's certainly had a resume of resumes, religiously speaking. But he said, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. He faced the same pressures that we all face. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, I love this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is free. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. By the way, if you want to read a great book, it's only about 50 pages. I think you get it for like a buck on Kindle. It's by Tim Keller. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I highly recommend that you read it. So I guess the question I have for you is this. How do you see yourself? Can you say, I do not care what you think of me, how you judge me. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Are you able to say that? For some of us, the reality and truth is, I am my worst judge. Every moment of the day, I'm constantly condemning myself. There's this voice constantly running. You've got to be better. You're not making the grade. The gospel frees us from us. And when we entrust our judgment to Christ, we can now begin to live, to perform, on the basis of the verdict that's already been given. Not of the verdict that we're hoping that will eventually come. When we see Christ aright, it is only then that we can see ourselves aright. Jesus frees us from us. Which brings me to my second point. Jesus frees us for each other. It's only when we truly see ourselves in the right place that we can begin to see one another. Because usually we're the one that's blocking the view, aren't we? C.S. Lewis again. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is not how much they see is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I don't have to be so self-absorbed because I'm God-absorbed. And I'm others absorbed. All of a sudden I can see other people. And so Paul goes on in this, uh, in this passage in Romans 12.4. For as in one body we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we though many are one body in Christ. And individually members one of another. We're one body together is what Paul is saying. Now if you go into Kroger 
or whatever, and you're looking on the magazine covers, you, uh, you'll see a couple of magazines. One is called Self. Self. It's about the individual. Because that is the most important unit. Or you see the word, or you see the magazine Shape. It's all about your shape, isn't it? It's all about you. But what we're discovering in this passage is, guess what? There's a new body that you have. And it's more than simply you. It's all of us, if you are a Christian. There is a new self. There is a new shape. It's not that we are absorbed into some collective consciousness and lose ourselves. No, rather, we continue to be ourselves, but we are united to one another in this new spiritual body. Now, I wonder why we think that this would be so strange when we think of the God that we serve. For is not our God tri-personal? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And yet He is one. Three, yet one. And the gospel is saturated throughout of this beautiful relationship within the Godhead. We see in John 17 that great prayer that Jesus gives that he, when he's talking to his heavenly father, I pray that they might be one as we are one. Them in me and I in you. May they be brought to complete unity that the world may see that I sent them and that I am in them. You ever wonder what this body is supposed to look like in its perfection when it's formed and, it's ri- and it rises up? It's supposed to look like Jesus Christ. It's a giant manifestation of Christ himself who is living in each one of us, bringing us together and forming us up. It's, Jesus is continuing to work in the world through His Holy Spirit in us. This body has many members. And so as Paul says in Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, really, to one another, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom this whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This body, this church. You know, if you take the word church, the Greek word, and you uh, sort of distill what is the most accurate term, church actually isn't the best word. The word is assembly. In fact, some churches call themselves the assembly. You ever gone to a Ford plant or a place where something's being assembled? I mean, how many parts do you think go into your particular car? And slowly, they're being brought together, assembled into this body that functions in unity with one another and performs this function. Oneness amidst all of the parts. That's what's going on all around the world with the assembly of the believers. And this assembly is in Christ, the chief cornerstone. It should not be of surprise to us if Christ is the chief cornerstone of this building, 
And as each one of us individually draws closer to him, we must, each of us, be being drawn closer to one another. He is the stone that brings us all together. He is the stone that makes us members of one another. I don't know if you've heard of these uh, people, these twins, Abby and Brittany Hensel. Anyone heard of them? You've seen them. It's that weird picture on the internet. You know, they constantly have stuff like this. Those are actually people. Abby, Abby and Brittany, they are highly symmetric, co-joined twins. So they were twins. They're two different people who were fused together. We use the term Siamese twins or whatever. Now they're literally one in a trillion because most of them don't ever live co-joined twins, you know, past birth. But they're actually 27 right now. They were in their own reality series, Abby and Brittany on TLC. Come on, you people. What's the problem with you? What's amazing is that they are highly symmetrical. They give the appearance of having a single body without marked variation from normal proportions. In fact, several vital organs are doubled. Each twin has a separate heart, stomach, spine, pair of lungs, and spinal cord. But the rest of them is as one. Can you imagine that? Two different people. And each twin controls only their half of the body, operating one arm and one leg. As infants, the initial learning of physical processes that required bodily coordination, such as clapping, crawling, and walking, required the cooperation of both twins. They can walk, they can run, they can ride a bike. They can do all of those things. But you see, the picture, we only have one head, Jesus Christ. We're not a physical body, we're a spiritual body. And yet we are symmetrical. If you've ever gone and looked at a cathedral, you see something beautiful, this symmetry that occurs on both sides that are being built up to look like Jesus. And each one of us, as members of this body, has a part. It says in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 puts it this way, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We would use the term spiritual gifts, gift spirit. This manifestation of the spirit for the common good, another word for manifestation might be the word exhibition. To each of us is given an exhibition of the spirit to give, to serve one another for the common good. You ever gone to the Smithsonian Museum? I love going to the Natural History Museum. You start walking through this museum and they have a variety of different exhibitions. You know, you've got the stones here and then you've got the animals here and you've got the gems here and so on and so on. And as you go, you get a complete picture or a pretty complete picture of the natural world that we live in. 
We are each an exhibition of the Spirit. As Martin Luther said, Playmobil Martin, we are each a little Christ to each other. We are each the body of Christ, each playing a part. And the reason each of us are important in making up the body of Christ is because none of us is Christ by himself. But together we make up his body. Think about that story when Jesus comes to the leper. Excuse me, the leper comes to Jesus. And he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't run. He speaks. He says, I am willing. And he reaches out and he touches the leper before he heals him. And then he says, be clean. See, there are multiple functions that Jesus is doing as he administers the grace of God to that person. You might be the voice. You might be the hand. You might be the power. But together, you form to show the love of Christ. See, that's the purpose of the gifts, aren't they? To show God's love to the world and to one another. See, when you use your spiritual gift to build up the body, to lead people to faith, what you're communicating to them is, see how much the Lord loves you. See how much He cares for you. In fact, He has sent me to be the hands and feet to deliver this message. You know what you are? You're the mailman. And He's the letter. And we deliver it for one another. These gifts of the Spirit are gifts of grace for producing the fruit of the Spirit in other people. Love and joy and peace and patience. We're building up the body. God is using us. And gifts each one of us have, they differ according to the grace given us. Are you an arm? Are you a pinky? It doesn't matter if I'm able to be self-forgetful because my reward is from Christ. Who I am is not based on what I do. It's rather based on the faithfulness with how you do it. That's actually not true. A reward that we will receive will be based on that. But who I am is because of who He makes me. See, some of our gifts are of word. Some of them are a deed. Some of them are flashy. Some of them you'll never see. But all of them are indispensable. You can't do without them. Every now and then I get a letter in the mail. Comes from two of my favorite people, Alex and Marissa Kassir. Alex and Marissa, for whatever reason, I know the reason, the gifts that they have, the gifts of encouragement, send me a letter or a note every now and then to thank me and to encourage me and to share with me um, what my ministry means to them. It's very strange because it's usually right when I need it. Strange how God knows that, right? I mean, if we're one body and he's the head of it, 
doesn't he know when the letter needs to get sent? And Alex and Marissa, who never thought that I would be communicating this up here, they're not doing that for it for this. They're doing it because they genuinely want to be a part of what God's doing. And it makes all the difference. See, we all need a letter, don't we? And you're the letter. Heck, you might be a letter in the letter. You're just a letter C. You know? But when you add it all together, it's the love of Christ. Does it make a difference how this place looks? I think it does. Somebody cut the bushes out there. I've been thinking about the bushes. Did you know that? Redeemer only has one sign. And it's the digital sign. And you used to not be able to see it for a while because of the bushes. Does that make a difference? That's the letter C. It all adds up though, you see. So I guess the question I have is this. What body are you obsessed with? Is it mine? Or is it this? Are you present? What is needed is your heart. And your desire to find and take your place. To be a part of what God is doing. When you get to the point where you realize, I don't need to make my name famous. It's already famous. I already have an inheritance with God. You begin to see other people. To love them. That brings me to my final point. Which is, Jesus frees us to love one another, so go and do so. It says to let us use them. Notice twelve and eight, uh, 7 and 8, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in their teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now normally a pastor would go into a long Greek exposition of each one of these words and what they mean. I'm not going to do that. Because the truth of the matter is it's not the title that's the important thing, is it? Each one of these gifts, if you'll notice, are doing. Paul says if your gift is service, go serve. If your gift is teaching, teach. It's not important to know what your gift is. It's important to do what your gift is. And the manner in which you do it is important. Right? If you have the gift of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. There's nothing worse than mercy with no cheerfulness. <sighs> Gotta go do this, man. Leading with zeal. Contributing with generosity. Don't worry about the title. The more important question is, where does the body need to be built up? Where's there a need Look for the need. Look for others. And go and fill that need. Because it's when you engage and are doing it that you will begin to discover what God wants to do through you. In Redeemer, if you look at our uh, section on, we have some description on our purpose, our vision, and our mission. Right here, I think it's on page five. Our mission ultimately if we're part of the body of Christ, is to live as Christ did. 
And you know what Christ did? He engaged. He exposed. He sponsored. I'll explain that in one second. And he discipled. Maybe your gifts fall under engaging. Engaging is out there. Engaging the world with the love of Christ. Does anybody know that Redeemer exists beyond these four walls? Is Redeemer engaging the world in such a way? Because Jesus went, didn't he? He caused a stir, not because of his titles or his money, but because of his love. Is there a need for justice in this community? To be a part of seeking justice? Is there a need for mercy in this community to show surprising acts of mercy? We're not a huge church. It's not about being big or small. It's about being, you know, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, is it? It's the size of the fight in the dog. Are we engaging? I love uh, Norfolk uh, Trinity Church. They do an art show in Norfolk. Why? Well, the people they're trying to reach, for whatever reason, like art. And they must have a lot of artists there. So, but instead of just having their art thing, they got some people that have a passion for artists out in the world. And so they do an art show where they seek to engage people with art. We engage because Jesus engaged. We expose. What does expose mean? It means when somebody comes, it's the face that we present to people when they come. It's the face that says, we're glad you're here. This is for you too. Come and be a part. It's the guy who's out there with the umbrella. Who's standing there saying, come. It's the signs that we put up. It's the way that we do our child care. The way that we communicate. When we expose, we want to give the best picture. It's the musicians. It's whatever it is. How we show people Christ. It's how we sponsor them. We use the word sponsor, newcomers into church membership. What does that mean? It means taking people and helping them to move from being guests to being family. Caring for folks in the body. Knowing their story. Helping them find their place. Getting them, uh, knowing them and loving them. Finally, discipling them. Helping them to grow. Teaching them. Coming alongside of them. All of our word, a teaching up there that's going on right now. Teaching that's going here. Teaching that's going to happen. We each have a part and a place to play. I don't know about you, but to me that's exciting. Finish with this illustration. I think I've used it before if you've been in um, membership class. There's a church in Chicago, big church, uh, and uh, in a relatively wealthy area. And after one of the services, a guy came up to the pastor and he said, I see you have a lot of single women in this church, pastor. He said, yeah. He said, I, I look in the parking lot. I see a lot of broken down cars that these gals are driving. Turns out he was a mechanic. He says, I see a lot of wealthy people as well says, I want to do something about that. When it comes time for some of these people who have means to sell their cars, have them go ahead and give their car to me and I'll fix it up or whatever. And I'll go ahead, you know, and make sure they have a good car. And 
once a month, we're going to have where anybody, you know, uh, particular women, uh, you know, single women with kids or whatever, bring their car and I'll work on it in the parking lot for free. And you know what? People got excited about that. Now there are like 30 or 40 mechanics that come out on that Sunday to serve. And a lot of those mechanics, they weren't Christians in the beginning. They said, I want to be a part of this surprising love. Is that a ministry? Is that a spiritual gift? I don't see the name in the Bible. Love doesn't need a name. It's just love. What would happen if each one of us learned the art, the freedom of self-forgiveness? So we actually could see the world around us. We could see each other. What would happen if we started using our gifts? It's like a painting, you know? Everybody's got their color, and when you put it all together, you see something magnificent. That's what grow is all about, by the way. Go and grow. I think you'd see a picture of Jesus in all of its beautiful manifestation coming out of this church. What's the point I'm trying to make? Jesus gave his life that, me, that he might give us new life. That we might live a life for each other and for the world. Jesus frees us from us. He frees us for one another. So let's go and live and love and enjoy and celebrate. And as the world watches, there's no doubt that people will be added to the faith and we'll have a lot of fun together. That's what God's going to do in this church by His grace. Let's pray. My Father, you free me from the prison of me. Uh, you are the verdict. You are more than enough. Give me eyes to see my brother and sister. Give me a comprehension to understand that I have a new body. And I'm a part of it. Give me courage to act, to join, to be a part of what you're doing. And do a great work, Lord, for your sake that the world and us might see the grace of God through one another. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.